Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Is American politics a seething cauldron of animosities? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. You already heard about that. But also, you can go to support at brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that button. Throw a few pennies my way. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, use that super thanks button under the video. If you want to support me through Spotify, just go to Spotify for podcasters. You can find the podcast there and subscribe that way. And of course, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Uh, tell me what you want to hear. Send me those show requests. Give that five-star review wherever you can. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All those things help support the show and get more eyes and ears on the show. Because when I do something you want to hear... That translates to a podcast that you're going to like. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day, and it's the Mexicanization of American politics. This is a piece that appeared at American Greatness, and uh, it was sent to me by a listener of the program, and the uh, it's written by Roger Kimball, and the, the way that this individual sent it to me is said, look, You've got all of these Straussians, which is what American greatness, it's a Straussian website, all of these Straussians complaining about Reconstruction not going far enough. Now, one thing I find fascinating about this piece is that that's there, and I'll talk about that. But the real funny thing to me is that somehow we have this belief, and it's, it's born out of World War II, Okay. Let me, let me explain this. This belief that's born out of World War II that American politics has, has never been that combative except as it is now, except in the 1860s. We have this belief that we've had periods of time where American politics has been far less combative. Now, part of this is because after Roosevelt takes office in 1932, you have, for the next four presidential election cycles, crushing majorities, super majorities voting for Roosevelt. Even after that, you had a general consensus coming out of the Republicans. This is when they became the usable opposition. The Republicans essentially embraced Roosevelt-style government with some tweaks. And so people have asked me, you know, when did it really go off the rails? When did everything start? When did the Republican Party become basically worthless as an opposition? Well, 1936. In 1936, 
And really, you could say, you know, 1932, when Hoover ran against Roosevelt and lost, when he was the architect of what's called the New Deal, right? I mean, Hoover had already created the apparatus for it. Roosevelt simply wrote in campaigning against Hoover's government invention, then did it on steroids. But 1936, you get Alf Landon. And Alf Landon, in 1936, thought the New Deal was fine. It just went too far on some things. And then you have, which, of course, is kind of a Hoover-esque position. Then you have 1940, Wendell Wilkie, same thing. Same thing. I mean, the, the fact is, the people that were running as Republicans in this time period weren't really that conservative. Even 1950, 1948, I'm sorry, when you have Dewey and Truman, right? Dewey was essentially a soft New Dealer. But Truman paints him as this far-right radical. And so the Republicans become a useful opposition. These people are radical. These people are going to take away all the stuff we created, which they never actually advocated for that. Essentially, when you get to the New Deal, the Republican Party becomes worthless. The Democrats, uh, the Democrats just keep moving more and more to the left. Alf Landon supported the Great Society later in life. He supported Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. When is that conservative, right? So this point that we have political parties that are staunchly opposed to each other was not the case in the in the Great Depression and immediate post-World War II period. We only started seeing this when conservatives in America started getting a backbone again. Really beginning, I would say, in the 1980s, you started seeing some of it, but then really in the 1990s. Now, we know that there's problems with all of this, right? The, the Gingrich people, the Bob Dole people, they weren't really that committed to these positions. But when conservatives started getting a backbone, we started seeing more pushback against some of the leftist, not leftist nonsense. And the left is, oh my gosh, politics are so vitriolic. Politics are so bad. Politics are awful. Why? Because they're being challenged for the first time since the 1930s, their entire order is being challenged and they don't know how to deal with it. However, to say American politics has never been combative would be to miss not just the 1860s and 70s, which as Pete gets into the 1870s, which I'll talk about, but also the early American Federal Republic. People hated each other. So much so there was talk about secession as early as 1794. So much so that when the Constitution was going through the ratification process, people were violently assaulted to try to get them to vote for the thing. Politics has always been violent in America, particularly in the period leading up to the 1860s. People really did not like each other in the antebellum period. Do we forget the 1850s and some of the vitriol thrown around? People of the opposition party? about the 1840s, 1830s, 1830s, you have a real secession movement, nullification, you have, you have people in South Carolina, I mean, look, the Whig Party is created, and they called Andrew Jackson King Andrew in South Carolina, right? So what about all of that? These people really didn't like each other. We had people fighting duels in the 19th century, yet somehow, this is the Mexicanization of American politics today. And if only we had done more in Reconstruction, we could have gotten rid of it. This is the stupidity of this piece. 
by Roger Kimball. So he begins, we see it everywhere in American politics. One army general gave voice to the fear in a memorable, memorable simile, worrying that the country might collapse like Mexico and the Central American countries unless something was done to tamp down partisan passions and encourage unity. His comment went viral, and soon people across the country were talking about deploring the possible, possible mechanization of American politics. The governing question, as one distinguished historian put it, is whether American politics has become permanently Mexicanized. Another commentator, considering the Mexicanization of institutions, defined it as a toxic situation in which all party contests have the character of civil war. Now, let me say this, you know, when you use this Mexicanization in South American politics, Mexico has always been a very volatile political place. In the 1840s, it changed over like overnight all the time. Same thing in South America. You had these very volatile governments in place and you had a lot of corruption and other things in these areas. So to use this language would have been understandable in the 19th century. People would know what you're talking about. Well, I mean, yeah, this is this is bad. We don't want that. We want some stability. We want unity. Now, what is the unity these people are talking about? Well, Republican-driven nationalization. Lincolnian nationalism is what we need to save America. What we're facing right now is the byproduct of Lincolnian nationalism. It hasn't saved America. It's made it worse in terms of political conflict. Once you start creating more central-driven politics, the, the outliers will get upset about that and push back. If we're not all lockstep for the great society or a softer great society or a new deal or a softer new deal or guns and butter, whether it's butter if you're the left or guns if you're the right, but each one would be big federal government spending and federal control of everything and all of this left-wing nonsense. If you're not for that, well, then you're a problem in America. And you need to, I mean, you are the enemy. So Kimball says, we all know what they mean, and it's scant consolation. I believe to note that the general to whom I refer was writing in 1877, or the distinguished historian, as was C. Van Woodward, writing about the 1876 election as aftermath in his book Reunion and Reaction in 1951. We can plain, discern plenty of echoes of that most disputed election in the conduct of our political life today. The contestants then were Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican governor of Ohio, and Samuel J. Tilden, the Democratic governor of New York. Reconstruction was still in force. Federal troops still controlled the southern states. Tilden won the popular vote by some three points. He also won 184 electoral votes to 165 for Hayes. The election came down to 20 disputed electoral votes in three southern states, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. Congress formed an electoral commission with a majority of Republican members to resolve the dispute. In the end... Commission awarded all 20 votes to Hayes, giving him a victory with 185 to 184 electoral votes. What was the price of victory? Yes, what was the price of victory, right? So there's a price to this. The Republicans got the presidency, but the South got the end of Reconstruction. That's the price to pay. Ending Reconstruction. It's a bad thing. The South might have ended it anyway, since they had held on to a majority in the House and had voted to cut off funds for occupying uh, federal troops. By the way, Hayes was going to end it regardless. He wasn't in favor of it. The thing is, most Northerners had soured on it too. They thought it was a bad deal, and it was bad for the South, and it was bad for the United States. As it happened, the Compromise of 1877, which really wasn't much of a compromise, that's something that Woodward basically made up, was never publicly debated. On the contrary, it was a result of what Woodward called secret covenants privately arrived at. But there's no real evidence this thing ever existed. 
Did it have the desired effect of restoring stability and order to the metabolism of American political life? To a large extent, yes. Though Woodward, in a later edition of his book, argues that the pragmatic victory came at the expense of abandoning the idealistic aims of Reconstruction, i.e., the full extension of civil rights to blacks, something Woodward thought had been definitively achieved with the civil rights movement and the attendant judicial interventions of the 1960s. So Kimball is saying, well, it did its job. I mean, it worked, but then we had all this bad stuff. You see, the Straussians can't get out of their way to virtue signal. They can't get out of their way to say, you know, uh, the Lincolnians, the Republicans are really on the right and all these things. Be that as it may, what seems most salient for our current situation is that is not the compromise that unfolded behind closed doors in 1877, but the determined uh, uh, fractiousness that preceded it. Indeed, what we have seen is a return to something like the Mexicanization of American politics. As many commentators have observed, the country is more divided now than at any time since the late 1850s, with this division as bitter as in the early years of Reconstruction. I would say there's never really been a time in American history where we've been united, except for that period of time I talked about the opening of the program. Americans were very divided in the late 18th century. They were very divided in the early 19th century. However, once you get past the War of 1812, then we have this era of good feelings. But was it really that good? You still had divisions. It's even during this time period. Well, I mean, that, that period of Monroe. But you still have some things going on there because you have people that are agitating. So there really wasn't that good of a... I mean, everyone called themselves Republican. The Federalists have been thoroughly defeated politically. There was kind of this lockstep, we're all going to be good Jeffersonians. In fact, Henry Clay was a Jeffersonian who liked Hamiltonian nationalism. He got that out of the War of 1812, essentially, when Jefferson went in that direction, too. And so you had that kind of political climate. But we know by the 1830s, actually the late 1820s, all of that falls apart because the nationalists come in and try to make everything one-size-fits-all, top-down government, and it doesn't really work. And so you had pushback. The real problem is when people say, I don't want, I think that federal government is doing something that's unconstitutional. I don't want that. Well, oh my gosh, you can't. Oh, that's, uh, that's bad for America. Is it really? Is that really bad for America? Or is that good for America? Do we really have bitter? bitter I mean, look, I would say that now we're actually worse than we were at any time in the antebellum period. Or even during Reconstruction. I know we had shot at each other in the 1860s. That's really bad. We're not shooting at each other now, but in terms of the culture war, it's worse now than it was then. Americans were disputing. They were predominantly Christian in the 1850s, even though there were, dis there were disputes over what that actually meant, what Christianity meant on certain issues. But you still had maybe more similarities even then than you do now. However, there were cultural differences that have been there since the 1600s. We all know that was there. Those cultural differences still exist. But now that you have this vehicle of a big central government and an overpowering central government that can do whatever it wants at any time it wants, that exacerbates the problem. The late English philosopher Roger Scruton put his finger on one aspect of this division when he observed, quote, that left-wing people find it very hard to get on with right-wing people because they believe they are evil. Whereas I have no problem getting on with left-wing people because I simply believe that they are mistaken. 
what I've called the Manichaean spirit of the left. It's almost Gnostic vision of the world into an elite of virtuous souls against a coven of ignorant wickedness is something we see everywhere. Well, you know who else thought that? Yankees. This is actually the Yankee spirit of American politics. This is the Yankee spirit of America. This is the Puritan, political Puritan self-righteousness that comes out of New England. Because they were doing this. They were doing this in the 1850s. They were calling, literally calling Southerners devils. Literally calling them that. So we've seen this before, right? And he says, yeah, in the 1850s. We've seen it in other times too, but they were calling Southerners devils. And that would be New England Yankees, the left. Do we really want to praise these people for Civil War Reconstruction? Do we really want to do that? Because that's what you're doing. This is what I ask all of these West Coast Straussians. You see, you, you undermine your entire argument. You're right about this. We've got this problem. But the solution is not Lincoln. The solution is not the, the more Reconstruction. The solution is not to have nationalism. Whether the subject be climate change, COVID policy, racism, real or imagined, the latest wrinkle of, of, uh, of uh, immorality, the perfidy of Donald Trump, or any other item on the menu of woke enthusiasm, the spirit of segregation and snarling repudiation is alive and well. You are either with us or you are damned. It's worth noting that today, unlike it was in the late 1870s, the malady is systemic. That is, the spirit of repudiation affects not just the partisan politics, but the, just about every aspect of our social life. Education, entertainment, the media, even many churches and corporations. Well, it was all there then too. See, people don't realize that. It was all there then. It was in education. Why do you think uh, people are so, they complain so much about the United Daughters of the Confederacy and other things? Look, if you look at what Southerners are saying right after the war, we're going to lose this ultimately if we don't at least get to tell our side of the story. And so you had a war over education at that point. And you go back and there's certainly when it comes to civic education, there were all kinds of disputes about what the meaning of the war was. There eventually became a consensus in the late 19th, early 20th century that Lincoln was a good guy. The South was wrong on slavery. The South, though, was heroic. They had good people that fought for what they thought was right. Uh, but they were wrong. And so that was the consensus. That was it. That was, But that, did, that took decades to get there. And that was only in place, you know, Southern heroes were American heroes, all this stuff. That was only in place, really, till you about the 1960s. It was a pretty, you know, five or six decades that you had that position. But um, that took some time. Entertainment, it was all over the place in entertainment. You had all kinds of cultural divisions in entertainment. Literature was your entertainment. And it was all there. right? Pe again, people that write this stuff don't realize they're, they're not that historically uh, knowledgeable. They don't realize what was really happening in these time periods, even before the 1870s. The media, again, newspapers, very partisan. Many churches, you had Republicans literally replacing Democrats in Southern churches because, or at least pro-Union men replacing pro-Confederate men because they understood the pulpit was the place that people could express themselves the most. This was being done and directed by the United States government. Now, corporations are something entirely new. That is an area we didn't have as much of. But 
you had corporate welfare, or at least business welfare. That was the entire argument of protective tariffs and internal improvements. It's all that was. So this has always been there. Still, it is in the realm of politics that this intolerance, tolerant Gnosticism appears in its most naked viciousness. It is not strictly a, a party political phenomenon. Scruton drew his line between right and left, but perhaps the deeper division is between those who regard politics and the powers it commands as the most important human impulse and those who, on the contrary, see politics as subordinate to other values and pursuits. Well, I do think we're, I mean, Americans have made politics into a religion. In fact, it's become like that, right? I mean, poll after poll shows that if you if your son or daughter is going to date someone, you want them to date someone that believes with you politically. It used to be religion. You wanted them to be a, you know, X, Y, or Z in terms of a nomination. Now, that doesn't matter as much. Politics matters more than anything. The Mexicanization of American politics operates with the threat and sometimes the reality of violence in the background as potential expedient. It's meant to stay mostly in the background, mostly. Surveillance, ostracism, censorship are generally the preferred weapons, at least in the beginning. In terms of electoral politics, you can already see the narrative being uh, taking shape. I suspect that those who view Ron DeSantis as someone who, with less baggage and therefore more virtue points than Donald Trump are naive. By the time the 2024 campaign gets underway in earnest, and should DeSantis be the candidate, the Democrats will have completed their transformation of the Florida governor into literally Hitler. I mean, this is, yeah, this is true. And that's because of these history wars, right? I mean, this is the problem with all this, these history wars and how they, everything. I mean, this is what we've gotten to. People are so historically ignorant. Even this piece, they can do this stuff. And politics is now a religion. And so if you can come up with the Satan, or you get the, you got the, the good guy and the bad guy, well, then that creates a very simplistic dichotomy that people then gravitate to when they go to vote. We got the good guy and the bad guy. We got the R and the D. We got the Hitler and the non-Hitler, whatever it is. It's just so stupid. All these policies, it's just stupid. There's no way to describe it. It's just complete stupidity. But that's because we've, we've gotten politics to that level, too. So he finishes by saying, Our public life today is seething, a seething cauldron of animosities. Compromises are not wanted, only unconditional surrender. Well, in some ways, why do you want to compromise with these people? When some of these things are very important not to compromise on. This is where federalism really comes into play. What he misses in all this, the real beauty of the American system, was always the ability of the states to avoid compromise. What did compromise ever get the United States? You take it from either position. Go back to the antebellum period. We compromised over and over again. What did that actually get the United States? Just prolonging the division until it came to a real nasty head in the 1860s. Maybe the compromise should never have been made in the first place. Maybe the better thing would have been just a separation. We know that that was actually on the table in 1787 and 1788. In fact, Edmund Randolph in Virginia pleaded with the Virginia Ratifying Convention to ratify the Constitution because he thought if they didn't, it was secession. Virginia was going to leave the Union. Pleaded to save the Union. That, of course, means that he thought Virginia could leave the Union, but he thought it was a bad idea. But this was the point. They all recognized it could happen. Maybe prolonging the pain was actually worse. The compromises were no remedy. They were the problem. Why do you want to compromise on things that are fundamental? Those are questions that you have to answer. For what?
what's the end game? This is calculating the value of union. These are things that I've talked about on this program. Federalism avoids those compromise situations because, well, if that was off the table, if these culture war issues were off the table at the center and people stopped worrying about if you don't live in California, what happens in California or what happens in you know, Massachusetts or Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia or North Dakota, people didn't worry about these things. If you don't live there, then what's the point? He says, we'll know that has that that has changed when a candidate who dissents from the consensus of the ruling party is allowed not only to take office, but also to take power. I'm not holding my breath. Again, looking at everything, a political solution to a bigger problem. It's a structural problem in America. And it's a historical problem in a way, too, because it's Lincolnian nationalism that really is the issue. So, I thought this piece was worthy of discussion because of the myths that are in it. That is, that we've had this consensus-driven America, compromise-driven America, and that's been good for America. Has it really been that good? I mean, would you say that Republicans just becoming a usable opposition since the 1930s was really good for America? Or that compromises in the antebellum period, even the Constitution itself, was good for America? It led to the death of, deaths of a million Americans. Compromising and reaching consensus on foreign policy with the neoconservatives, as I talked about last week, has led to thousands and thousands of Americans being killed in foreign wars. Is that good? Is it, if we have consensus on suicidal uh, intervention in Ukraine, is that good? Or should we be talking about these things? Maybe the opposition is the beneficial thing. That's the real question. And even on issues like civil rights. Would we say, I mean, there was consensus for all these years that Jim Crow was fine in America. But then you had people opposing that. They created agitation. That agitation produced the end of Jim Crow America, even though we're kind of going back to that, not, not legally, but we're going back to it de facto, not de jure, but de facto. But So we had these things. I mean, would, would, would we say that was, you know, we, we shouldn't have had a conversation about that? So you can put this on either side of the political spectrum, and you come out with, I think you should come out with the answer that we don't really want consensus on everything unless it's a super majority, is what I talked about last week. If you can get a super majority believing it, then fine. But if you can't, there's even a little bit of dissent. Maybe it's not the right thing. So I thought the piece was interesting, deserved a podcast. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.